This podcast is an examination of the historical research of William Branham and his message cult following. William Branham was a minister in the gambling town of Jeffersonville, Indiana, just across the river from Louisville, Kentucky, as early as 1933. He came in contact with the Reverend Roy E. Davis, an official spokesperson for the 1915 Ku Klux Klan, and later Imperial Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan. Davis introduced Branham to the Pentecostal faith and the art of faith healing, which would later be introduced into Branham's stage persona as he took his place among the evangelists in the post-World War II healing revival. Branham is credited by some as being a catalyst for the Latter Rain Movement and Jim Jones of People's Temple. This podcast is not sympathetic to the views of the Ku Klux Klan that William Branham held, but it is disturbing and warrants research. This podcast is an examination of that research. You can find more about this research and other topics on the website william-branham.org. Join us as we turn back the pages of time and examine the controversial issues of William Branham and his message. By nature, religious cults are a tightly knit group of people with an unhealthy level of intimacy. They're very close, affectionate, and caring people over time who have became exact clones of personality. They look alike, they act alike, they think alike. They start liking the same things. The cult that I escaped had an unhealthy affection for the wilderness, simply because of the fables told by the cult leader, and those fables included stories from the wilderness. People who would have never chosen to be the outdoors type were climbing mountains, hiking trails, hunting game. Some churches within the cult even frowned upon many of the other activities, especially if it was associated with modern entertainment that you would typically find indoors. When you're on the inside, you become more than family. You become part of the mold, and over time, this mold actively changes the makeup of your personality. Again, to the example I came from, the cult leader died in 1965. Had he been alive for the next 50 years, this man would have changed with the times. We find recorded example of his change during the years that led to his death, but this change was stopped abruptly by an automobile accident. As Hollywood started making an impact on society during the early years of the leader's ministry, many churches were condemning this change. And the leader strongly opposed watching these movies. When television started spreading like wildfire, this absolutely grew worse. Sermons would inclu include quotes like, Satan's pulled one over on you. Now they've got it in their homes. But as these changes started becoming largely accepted, the leader himself started frequenting movies. Those in the cult who never knew this hold on to the earlier belief that movies are of the devil. But those who saw this leader in the theaters, or who have in, saw him jo enjoy a movie or a ball game on the television with the leader's own sons, will no longer deny themselves of the entertainment that they once forbid. This presents a problem. 
you see now the cult itself is split into two groups. Those who now realize that they themselves are in charge of their televisions, having the power to decide whether to watch good or evil, and those who practice asceticism. Asceticism is denying worldly pleasures to achieve a higher spiritual state. It is the belief that you are the one in control, not God. If you want to be more like God and be presented more holy, then you must abstain from all the pleasures of this world. This is a dangerous heresy, one that has been condemned since the Gnostic influence started to infect the early church. Irenaeus wrote an entire book against heresies, condemning this pagan influence that was infiltrating Christianity. The Apostle Paul also spoke out against asceticism. Colossians 2.18, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Before you can accept asceticism, you must first deny the cross of Jesus Christ. You must deny the power of the cross, deny that His grace is sufficient. You must believe that there is something that you also must do before you can be saved. In Mark 7, Jesus condemns the Pharisees for letting the tradition of their rules and boundaries take priority over the Word of God. They had forgotten the very reason that the law was given, and they had denied themselves the love of their fellow man for their own tradition. He said unto them, All too well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and he who curses his father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, If a man come to, if a man says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is korban, that is, a gift from God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect. Making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down. And many such things you do. You see, mankind, by nature, has always struggled with tradition. Unless they remember the underlying reason that a doctrine or a law was given, they will start to focus on that law. And over time, the reason is completely forgotten. Jesus knew this when he was having the Last Supper with the apostles. Though what he did has now become tradition, the reason for what he did will never be forgotten. Luke twenty-two nineteen, And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, this, my body, is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. While many view the tradition of taking the Lord's Supper in their churches as some supernatural event, we find little or no support for that in Scripture. All Scripture points to the cross. And this that Jesus just instructed his disciples was a beacon placed throughout time. From the time he ascended to the day he will return, people will remember the cross. But a religious cult will take 
simple tradition and make it dangerous. Those who do not follow the tradition are cut off and they're scorned. Those who follow it are filled with pride. That pride is amplified as the minds are molded to become one personality. We find this example even in nature. If you throw a piece of meat to a pack of hungry wolves, the first wolf that finds it will start tearing into it. And if there's room for a second and a third, they also begin to devour the meat. But when those around, those who do not have the meat, start coming in trying to get some of their own, the three wolves will snarl and growl at them as if they're some different kind of beast. Wolves will turn against other wolves, even though they are the same creature. Cults are no different. Men and women who were once friends, family, or neighbors are seen as the ones who didn't get the meat, especially if they once had the meat and decided to eat something else. The priority of cult members is to hold on to what they have because they are internally starving themselves of something new. Christianity, by nature, is spreading the good news that Christ came to save the lost. We are sharing our meat with others, and there is a bountiful supply. In fact, the more that we give to others, the more spiritual meat that we get for ourselves. But a religious cult is the exact opposite. Rather than freely give, those who did not receive the meat are scorned and condemned. Those who once had the meat will never be given another piece of meat, and they are denied and rejected. One of my favorite chapters in the Old Testament is Ezekiel 16, talking about God's faithless bride. And it is a love story, one that we all should know by heart. A vision is given to Ezekiel, describing how the children of Israel continually fell into idolatry and were not faithful to her true husband, the one true God. And God does not tell the Ezekiel that the children of Israel were a different race of people intended to rise above others to scorn and condemn them. God says this, Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite. Your mother was a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day that you were born, your cord was not cut, still connected. Nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor in swaddling cloths. That's Ezekiel 16, 1-4. The children of Israel were comprised of human beings. They were the same flesh and bone as the Amorites and the Hittites. And yet God chose them. They did not earn their being chosen by the worldly pleasures that they could have forbade. And more than that, God tells Ezekiel that they were not holy when he chose them. God calls them naked. He says, when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you are at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow and entered into you, into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine.
It's Ezekiel 6, verse 8. Throughout the chapter, God reminds Ezekiel how, is, how Israel fell into idolatry time after time. She became nothing more than a harlot, unfaithful to the one true God, and becoming intimate with the idols of Baal. Israel had taken pleasure with the cults of Baal, and that influence had turned her into a harlot. God describes how displeased he is with the children of Israel and says that she has become like her mother, the Hittites. God's description of how the children of Israel had become is no different than what we see in religious cults of today. He says this, Behold was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Samaria has not committed half your sins. You have committed more abominations than they. And you have made your sisters appear righteous by all of the abominations that you have committed. Bear your disgrace, you also, for you have intervened on behalf of your sisters. Because of your sins in which you acted more abominably than they, they are more in the right than you. So be ashamed, you also, and bear your disgrace, for you have made your sisters appear righteous. It's Ezekiel 16, 49 through 52. Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, and many cult pastors give an unscriptural reason for this. The reason that they give usually supports their own agenda, whether it's the type of clothing or the appearance or the music or even homosexuality. But that is not what God says. God says that Sodom would have been spared if they showed compassion to the poor and needy. They were haughty. They were filled with pride. They had become like the religious cults of today. But while we could point to example after example to show the similarities between a cult and the destruction of Sodom, that is not the point God is making. Their hearts and their minds had been molded into a similar personality. Think of this. Abraham pleaded with God on behalf of Sodom, begging the Lord to spare this city if just 50 were found righteous. All the way down to 10 people, Abraham pleaded with God and asked God for mercy. But they were not able to find even 10 in the city. They had all become like minds, similar personalities, all filled with pride, none caring for the poor and needy. They only cared about themselves. God said that the children of Israel had made the city of Sodom look righteous. They were worse, but yet they were chosen. They did not save themselves through works righteous faith. Israel was worse than the city that was destroyed by fire, condemned by God, and was a prostitute in the eyes of God. And God chose them. For thus says the Lord, God, I will deal with you as you have done, 
and you have despised the oath in breaking your covenant. I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways, and you will be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger, and I give them to you as daughters. But not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you, and you will know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded, and will never open your mouth again because of your shame, when I atone for you for all that you have done, declares the Lord God. <laughs> Ezekiel 16, 59-63 What God just did in this vision to Ezekiel is something that these cult pastors will never do as they condemn those who are outside of those boundaries of their cult. God was very harsh and very condemning in these words, telling the people not to serve other gods and rebuking them for the gods that they served. God wants the people to serve Him and Him alone. But then, after calling Israel the greatest prostitute that would ever walk the face of the earth, after calling her the mother of harlots, God lifts her up. God shows mercy and faithfulness. God pointed to the cross. An unhealthy intimacy with those in your chosen place of worship leads to pride. If your religion gradually transforms you into seeing other humans as lost and dying creatures, unworthy of the cross of Calvary, then you have become no better than the pack of wolves. While unhealthy intimacy seems loving from the inside, and those on the inside of the boundaries are viewed as like-minded and in one accord, those on the outside are starving for a piece of meat, and they are rejected with a snarl. They experience the opposite of love. Paul describes healthy Christians those who are following the words of Christ. He describes how we are to interact with one another, even those who are not inside of these boundaries that we create. He says this, Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record. <laughs> Let me repeat this. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in truth. It always protects. It always trusts. Always hopes. Always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 10.